Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey there, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lago. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, we're in Sacramento talking to another congressional hopeful. This one's a Democrat running in the Central Valley. That's right. Assemblymember Adam Gray is in studio with us. He's taking some time out of his busy end-of-session legislative schedule to talk about running for Congress in the 13th District. That's an area with a lot of agriculture, and Gray himself grew up in a dairy family. We'll check in with him about Governor Gavin Newsom's new water plan, or not, released a few hours ago, and talk about why he's never been scared to butt heads with fellow Democrats. Look forward to that. But first, uh, speaking of Democrats, Governor Gavin Newsom got a new chief justice or named a new chief justice this week, elevating Patricia Guerrero, who's already on the court, and appointing another associate justice, Kelly Evans. Scott, you always follow this judicial stuff closely. What are your thoughts on these two women and kind of what it means for the state? Well, you know, I was struck uh, when he appointed Patricia Guerrero because she's from the Imperial Valley, you know, not a place that you think of as, you know, home for a lot of uh, associate justices in California. Um, Kelly Evans also grew up in public housing in Oakland. And if you think back to the last governor, Jerry Brown named three justices, and they were all Ivy League, Yale, Harvard grads, all great justices. Um, And that is not the course that uh, this governor is taking. Uh, Patricia Guerrero, uh, local product, Kelly Evans, grew up in, uh, as I said, Oakland, went to Stanford, UC Davis Law School, different kind and really much more humble upbringings, I think, uh, than uh, some in the past, as did Martin Jenkins, who is also the first uh, openly gay and he's black as well, uh, a member of the court. So I think all those things are important. Um, and it's also interesting, I thought, how quickly he made this decision. Mm-hmm. Because if you think back to the, the first appointment he made, Marty Jenkins, it really seemed to take forever. So I, I don't know if they had a heads up, maybe, you know, that this was coming. Uh, but uh, Or any of the other appointments he's made, Padilla. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Was like, was what's like happening? Yeah, exactly. But I, I think, you know, this is, um, you know, it, this is not like the 1980s, you know, when we went from Jerry Brown to uh, Duke Majin and all those judges got removed. I mean, this is an increasingly Democrat-appointed court. I think there's just one left, uh, Carol Corrigan, who was appointed by Governor Schwarzenegger. Uh, so it'll be interesting. I think, you know, I was a little surprised that Guerrero got elevated just because she is so new. She's only mm. been on the court for a few months. Um, and, you know, not only are you the chief judge on that uh, court, you're also in charge of the entire court system. So it's a lot of administrative yeah. stuff. And I mean, that was Tani Kantil-Sakaue, you know, who's leaving, um, had a lot of 
headbutting with lower court judges and the judicial council. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how Patricia handles that kind of more admin side of things. Yeah. I mean, Kelly Evans, a familiar face, if you've been around Sacramento for a while, she was uh, in the AG's office for a while, worked for the ACLU, really pushed some of the bail reform conversation. Former public and, defender. Yeah, and then worked in Newsom's office, apparently helped him shape that moratorium on capital punishment. So I think definitely more of a left turn with her. But I mean, in my experience interviewing her, she's also very much, you know, a lawyer, very sort of not bombastic, very down, you know, down the middle on a lot of stuff. So did we say she's uh, openly gay as well? Right. So she the, the two now uh, openly gay justices on the court, and you know both of these are historic in their own right. way. Yeah. First Latina to, to be chief to run justice. The court. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, before we take a break, there are a lot of bills coming up that we're going to meet their fate in either the legislature or on the governor's desk. One of them is SB fifty seven. This is a safe injection site. That's what proponents call this. Uh, Scott, you were out at a news conference this week with supporters urging Newsom to sign it. Tell us about it. Yeah. So uh, uh, Scott Wiener from San Francisco is the author of SB 57. And, uh, you know, this is a bill or similar version that Jerry Brown vetoed when he was governor, uh, thought that it would be promoting illegal drug use. And, you know, Wiener and the people who appeared with him, including Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf, say, hey, look, what we're doing now is not working. We've seen on the streets of San Francisco and Oakland and L.A. so many people just, you know, either using fentanyl and dying or using some other drug that had uh, fentanyl in it, and they're dying. Uh, and so the idea is create these pilot projects in these uh, five, uh, three places, uh, L.A., San Francisco, and Oakland, and see if it makes a difference. You know, Libby Schaff said, what we're doing now is just filling up the morgues. And while there are people who have, you know, legitimate concerns about sanctioned sites where people are shooting up, at least they'll be doing it with supervision and possibly steering them into some treatment. But we're also hearing some nervousness among supporters of the governor with perhaps an eye on a 2024 run in other states that might not be as progressive as California is, you know, might not be open to this. And we should say he did say in 2018 when he first ran for governor that he was very, very open to this idea. And then just today sort of demurred, said, oh, I haven't looked at the text of the bill yet. So, I mean, I don't know. It'll be interesting because Newsom, you know, helped legalize marijuana in California. Like he has always been very anti-prohibition. He has. And he's been on the leading edge of other things like gay marriage. He took a lot of flack from that when he was mayor of San Francisco from people like Dianne Feinstein, who thought it was, quote, too much, too fast. So we'll see. I mean, I think if he, you know, didn't have these presidential ambitions, which he denies, uh, but clearly has, it would be a pretty easy call for him, you know, but I think because of the situation, because his name is getting mentioned and he is getting a lot of attention, uh, it's going to be a close call. We'll, we'll see. He's got 11 days to decide. All right. 11 days. You heard it here. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Democratic congressional candidate Adam Gray. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of The Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. 
Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today we have with us State Assemblyman Adam Gray. He served in the legislature for the past decade where he's often sparred with and sometimes been punished by leaders in his own Democratic Party, but they're all lining up behind his run for Congress. Adam Gray, welcome to The Breakdown. Well, thank you. So great to be here today. So we mentioned that you grew up in the uh, Central Valley. You were born and raised, I believe, in Merced. Um, Your parents owned a dairy supply business. So I guess my first question is, what does that mean? Did you guys have dairy cows? Were you processing milk? What were you supplying? What does that mean? Yeah, so my grandfather uh, started a company, Merced Dairy Supply, uh, which was really two businesses. One business selling dairy equipment. So if you've been to a dairy milking equipment uh, and the like, uh, we sold that equipment, we installed that equipment, we maintenanced that equipment. Uh, In addition to that, uh, we had kind of what you would uh, think of as a traditional kind of family feed store. A bunch of different agricultural supplies, uh, store you would see in, uh, we would sell chicks once a year. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And people come in uh, from around town and, and other just uh, ranch supplies, right? Yeah. Rope and uh, whips and feed and dog food and all, all kinds of different things. Did yeah. you milk a few cows as a kid? I, I have, yes. Although, like <laughs> I said, I didn't grow up on a dairy and our family didn't run a, uh, uh, a dairy farm. But, uh, uh, you know, certainly spent a lot of time as a kid. Uh, running around dairies. Yeah. So what was your childhood like? I mean, it seems like it's really influenced how you've approached politics, but how would you sort of describe sort of every day growing up in Merced? (laughs) I had a great childhood. I mean, Merced's a a wonderful town. Uh, It was a smaller town when I was a kid than it is uh, today. Obviously, now it's the home of the University of California at Merced, and uh, it's growing quite a bit. Um, But it's a wonderful place. Uh, You know, with small town vibe, uh, grew up four or five blocks from our little feed store and, uh, you know, spent some time. My grandparents farmed uh, pistachios out in uh, La Grande, California, and I'd run out there a little bit and run our bikes around town and, you know, small town life. Yeah. Did you, uh, of course, the the Valley has changed politically, continues evolving. It's thought of as the most, one of the more conservative parts of California. Were your parents political at all or you're a democrat were are, are they democrats or were they and uh, you know are you one of the few blue members of your family or is it pretty purple <laughs> no most of my family are democrats uh, including my uh, on my mother's side my grandfather that was a wheat farmer in north dakota uh, committed democrat a big fan of fdr and uh, and i guess that tradition's been passed down you know through our family but there's other families as well in rural uh, rural California and rural America that I think continue with the Democratic tradition. But you have seen, you know, from the time my uh, grandfather had the dairy supply to my generation, uh, I think you've really th- seen things switch to a predominantly Republican uh, registered group. You know, a lot of a lot of people in rural California feel like the Democratic Party uh, hasn't done right by agriculture and hasn't done right by rural communities. Well, I know that you... I think your first sort of taste of politics was volunteering on Dennis Cardoza's campaign as a maybe teenager. As a teenager. Was he a family friend? Yeah, he was a family friend. Okay. And uh, I mean, it's a small town. You kind of know, know everybody. Yeah. The Cardoza family were um, well acquainted with my family. I had the opportunity to be involved in some uh, some campaigns uh, in high school, both helping Dennis get elected uh, to the assembly at that time, but also some uh, just community efforts around saving the library and uh, getting recycling, uh, curbside recycling in Merced, California. 
Yeah. You know, uh, Those bread and butter issues. <laughs> <laughs> how do you think growing up, you mentioned agriculture, uh, how do you think growing up where you did um, and having the childhood and young adulthood that you've had, how do you think that colors the way you look at issues and, and politics generally? Well, I've always found, you know, there's so much attention in the media uh, and in the national kind of uh, spotlight around uh, the political parties, right? And, and for good reason. I mean, there's these big organizations that are pushing out uh, their agendas and, and ideas and advocacy. Uh, but so much of, of what politics really is, is electing people to improve your quality of life where you live, right? And I think folks in rural communities um, have different needs than people in, in big cities, right? And uh, too, too often, you know, we kind of lose sight of that, in uh, in the work we do. And while your political party may set the foundation for some of your values, um, I think a lot of your, uh, your needs and your work is more informed uh, by what kind of community you represent and in small town, rural California. And I think, you know, that's another thing about growing up in the Valley. We have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder because we feel overlooked. Because when people talk about California, does anyone say, oh, is that where the farms are? You know, you don't hear that, right? You hear people talk about the beach and San Diego and Until Los Angeles. Until you get Angeles a California and... tomato and then you're like, you know. Well, that is the funny thing, right? Like you run around the country and you go into a grocery store and uh, and so much of it's made in California. Although we... people in Jersey think their tomatoes are better. Oh, Just FYI. That's a whole other podcast. Well, I, I want to ask because you ended up, I mean, we, we talked about you volunteering in high school and then I think you went to a couple of years of community college, but you went to UC Santa Barbara. I did. That's where I went to. I think we overlap for a year or two. <laughs> what was that experience like? Because after that, you came back to Sacramento and the Valley. But like, yeah. I don't know. How did that Im- impact you? Yeah, so I put myself through community college working at the family store. Right. And um, at that time, I don't, I don't know if they still have the same programs, but they had these transfer programs from the community colleges where you could, you know, kind of set a course for yourself. And then, uh, you know, I signed a transfer agreement with UC Santa Barbara, which was kind of a central California, central southern California yeah. uh, school. And um, worked worked my way through the community college, got into UCSB, and spent two years there, and uh, got a uh, a bachelor's degree in uh, political science. Um, and I love Santa Barbara. I'm just a, to be on the central coast, and it's a beautiful place. It's a wonderful school. Uh, certainly enjoyed my time there, and um, but I also enjoyed my time at community college. And frankly, yeah. glad I did it. More kids ought to do that. You know, you mm-hmm. cut your cost in half and uh, get a great education. Totally. So you meant, we mentioned that you'd worked for uh, Cardoza. You also worked over the years for former speakers, Herb Wesson, Fabian Nunez. Uh, you worked for uh, Jerome uh, Horton, Ron Calderon, a long list of folks. Um, what did you learn from them? I mean, what do you... Like real range there, that's too, a range, politically, yeah. personality-wise. <laughs> yeah, a couple of them got in trouble along the way. <laughs> yeah, I had, a, I had a great experience working in the legislature. Um, and you learn a lot, right? As, as a, but, you know, All the way from being an intern... Uh, to, you know, being a chief of staff and really learn the ropes of, of how uh, public policy is made and, you know, what the trade-offs are and, uh, and learning about the two houses. I was lucky enough to get to work both in the state assembly for a number of years and then had some opportunities in the state senate. And I think it was invaluable experience. It was one of the inspirations, in a sense, uh, to run for state assembly. Um, Watching how the bodies worked, watching how my part of California didn't get its fair share or didn't get put in the spotlight very often here in Sacramento and kind of our needs and and, uh, uh, concerns weren't always at the top of the agenda setting here. 
uh, in Sacramento. And I'll tell you, when I first started uh, in the legislature uh, back in 2000, there were still remnants of kind of those pre uh, term limit legislators who had been around for decades were very experienced and people have different opinions, you know, about that. Um, but the place operated uh, in, in a very professional manner. And over the course of a dozen years working for different members and very diverse set of different members that I got the opportunity to work for, um, you saw that experience kind of wither away. Mm-hmm. You saw at one point the average staff person in the legislature, I think it was like three years. The average member was around three or four years. Well, and they were going um, through speakers like a revolver. And they were going speakers. I, mean, I think I saw five, five or six speakers during the time I was... Uh, uh, a staffer, and I saw an opportunity. I said, here's a, a kid from a small valley town who's had a dozen years of experience in how the place operates, how, you know, to say what, where the bathroom is. Hey, you have and, more institutional right? memory than 90% of the building. And I thought, well, maybe if I run for assembly, I can do better than some of my colleagues. Not because I have, you know, LA's got 25 votes for their needs and the Bay Area's got a bunch of votes in their delegation. We don't have that in in the San Joaquin Valley. But maybe if I know how the place works and they don't, maybe I can punch above my weight. And I tell you, looking back now 10 years later, I do feel like I punched above my weight. You've been described by the LA Times as wily. <laughs> you embrace you that? <laughs> hey, if I was a boxer, that sounds all right. Huh? Yeah, right. Uh, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here, as always, with Scott Schaefer, and we have congressional hopeful current assembly member Adam Gray with us. So, I mean, speaking of that, part of the reason you've had to be wily is because you are a more moderate, business-friendly Democrat mm-hmm. during a decade where the legislature has gone increasingly to the left. Um, And I'm curious, like, have you ever, how do you think about approaching that? Because, you know, you've taken tough votes on tobacco, guns, um, water issues, push things that folks in your party didn't love. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that about representing your district? Is it about your personal beliefs? Are those the same thing? I think it's probably a mixture of all of that, right? I yeah. mean, the first and foremost thing on your mind at all times as an elected representative is your constituents, right? You know, Hopefully. Where, where do I think they're at yeah. on an issue? And, of course, they're not uh, monolithic in their beliefs, right? They're in a lot of different places. You have constituents that have very differing uh, opinions on certain issues. Um, and But you want to get a sense of where's the majority of my district at, and then, and, and then what is in my district's interest based on the information I have in front of me, right? And what's and, possible. And what's possible, exactly. What's the art of what's possible? And, and then you kind of final, finalize all that with, you know, what are my deeply held, you know, personal beliefs or values or, and how do they apply uh, to each of these uh, set of choices, right, which we're making. And, um, and, and, and frankly, it's a great experience doing that. I mean, it is fun to work with people. I've taken on tough issues. Um, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in both parties. You know, I mean, you bring up tobacco. You yeah. Know. Uh, oh, yeah. Was, it, actually, it, that's it, a good point. Because you were head of the committee that oversees tobacco yeah. when flavored tobacco and vaping was becoming really big. And I'll just give you a perfect example of yeah. you know, what I see as kind of hypocrisy. Some of the same folks that are busy uh, trying to ban tobacco or, or perhaps strictly regulate certain types of tobacco are the same folks that are pushing for more dispensaries and uh, flavored uh, marijuana gummies and all kinds of things, right? And so you kind of evaluate those 
policies and go, this doesn't seem super consistent, does it? BS meter. Right. And I think you see that in both parties, right. And in different issues. I mean that, you know, I use that as one issue, but, and I try to be a little more authentic, um, in my brand and representing my people. And I think that people that grow up in small farming communities, I think we have a certain, uh, uh, practical nature uh, in the way we think about things. And we come from a place where you make a lot of stuff, right? You know, if you drive up and down the I-5, you see all kinds of billboards railing against Nancy Pelosi, railing against water policy. Actually, I just drove up there last weekend. It was all Newsom. It was oh, all yeah, Newsom yeah. signs right now. He's stolen the spotlight. <laughs> he, he's still, yeah. She's on her they way out, I guess. They were actually a little less mean than some of the previous signs, <laughs> but they were definitely calling out Newsom and saying, don't send our water to the fish, and right? you do Well, and you do see signs for bullet train high-speed rail, uh, which goes right through, you know, the Central Valley at the moment. Uh, what do you think of it? Should they pull the plug? you support it? What, how do you I feel? support public infrastructure. And I think we ought to build more trains. I think we ought to build more dams. Um, you know, one of the things I say to people is oftentimes here in California, if you find a, a super conservative individual, they'll, they'll be very, uh, they'll be staunchly against the train. High-speed rail, right? Mm-hmm. And then you'll find some of, some of the lefty environmental coastal voters who you know don't want to see one dam put up anywhere, right? And I say, wow, the only thing you guys have in common is not building things. Right. And maybe that's the problem here in California, right? I mean, this country uh, in some of its most prosperous and successful decades uh, was because of our investment in public infrastructure, schools, roads, trains, dams, and all the great jobs uh, that those projects create and generational uh, wealth and opportunity for families. And frankly, I think we ought to get back to getting as much public infrastructure that does a public good, uh, whether it be a, a new dam to uh, store more water. I mean, as we face climate change and many of the difficult issues uh, and, and these unpredictable weather patterns, isn't it obvious to all of us that we need more ways to store water when we have it right. so that we can get through the times that we don't, but yet we don't move forward with that stuff, right? Because you've got people that are single issue uh, advocates on both sides of the uh, uh, horizon, and they're not getting together and uh, putting some of the practical solutions in place that actually could uh, really help all of California and help America. Well, I mentioned that Newsom rolled out uh, a sort of expanded plan today. It does include expanding reservoir and groundwater storage capacity by about 4 million acre feet. And like, you're deep in the water policy. So let me just ask a big picture question. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like we do often have this debate that's like farmers versus fish, but Mm -hmm. like we all need food and we all need a healthy ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Where do you see the kind of broad uh, potential for compromise? And I mean, you're running for Congress. Like, how can you do that better in D.C. than maybe in Sacramento? Mm -hmm. Well, I see tons of room for compromise and progress. And I think uh, people's... uh, People put themselves in corners and they're unwilling to even discuss uh, progress. To give you a big picture idea, I'm 44 years old and in my lifetime, our water supply at the state level has grown by 1%. In that same period of time, we've almost doubled our population. Um, It's obvious we haven't made the investments we need to make. Hmm. Now, I think there are factions of the environmental uh, advocacy pop, you know, uh, folks up here in Sacramento and DC who, who have a bit of a no grow strategy, right? They think the best thing for the environment is not to build more houses and not to expand development. And not, How's and, that going? And so in a sense, uh, by cutting off our water, that's a way to force, uh, a lack of, uh, of development and, and investment. Um, I, I take a more practical view that the population's doubled, uh, 
you know, we need the food produced in the valley. The valley produces, California produces two-thirds of the nation's fruits and vegetables. Just think about that for a minute. If we were to fallow or get rid of 50% of the acreage in this state that we farm, what impact does that have on every state in this country? Right. And that's a message I'd like to take to D.C. and go work with my colleagues from other states and say, you know what? The politics of California may have become so left and there'd be so many members who are, in, in a sense, in the pocket of uh, the NRDC or the Sierra Club or a group that uh, that they or their constituents are just, you know, have such deeply held beliefs there that they can't compromise in a way that's going to get us the storage we need to sustain the food production. So maybe some of the other states need to help uh, pitch in and have a, a national, a federal solution for the western states on some of these water supply issues. So you have been known to buck the party leadership, and you've been punished for that from time to time in the legislature. You know, one of the things that has made Nancy Pelosi so successful in Congress is keeping the caucus together. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to Washington, she may or may not be speaker again, but, uh, you know, would you see yourself as somebody who is following the lead of the speaker, or are you going to continue being this person who challenges the authority? I'm always going to put my district first. It's just... Uh, would you have voted for the climate change bill? Or it, will, will, would you have? Package, it's coming up tomorrow. The package but, that's up yeah. right now? Um, I think I would. Uh, the, I think there's a lot of good in that bill. And frankly, I see that bill as a compromise package. You know, there were folks in the country who were calling for uh, spending that I think was out of control uh, that would have increased... Uh, the rates of inflation that we're looking at. And I think some of the good moderates in uh, in the United States Senate and, and even in the Problem Solvers Caucus and the New Dems and some of the other congressional groups kind of held the line. And it took many months and a lot of fighting and a lot of disagreement. But what did we end up with at the end of the day? It was a compromise package that's going to make important investments in uh, tax credits and other mechanisms to help us you know, fight climate change, right? Um, and also important investments in uh, and, and, and price controls, in essence, uh, uh, or, or price negotiation, I guess you should say, uh, in pharmaceutical, making you know prescription drugs more affordable and um, and making uh, electric cars more affordable and renewable energy more attainable. Those are all good things that I think most people on both sides of the aisle would agree with. Um, it's too bad that it was a partisan vote. You know, I, I tend to want to work in the space of bipartisanship. That's why I was a founder of the California Problem Solvers Caucus, and I've introduced many uh, big uh, pieces of legislation that have been bipartisan. Um, but I think it was an important step forward, and yeah, I think I would have voted for it. Let me ask you about another kind of high-profile issue right now, which is gun rights ownership. Mm-hmm. You, uh, this session alone, voted no on the bill that would give folks a private right of action to sh- sue illegal manufacturers. You voted yes on ghost gun restrictions. You didn't vote on a couple of other gun control measures. How do you approach that issue? What are your sort of sort of philosophical approach to that. And again, back to your district, what do you hear? Well, isn't that yet another great example of hypocrisy? So Texas uh, puts a inappropriate law in place to allow litigation, uh, you know, around uh, reproductive rights. And we say, well, that's terrible. We'll do it. So we're going to do it. Right. I mean, I I just find that absurd. Like, let's get serious here. Um, You know, is gun violence a real issue? Of course it is. And I take my lead from law enforcement because who do we put in charge of protecting our families and ourselves and our and our communities? Well, law enforcement. And when law enforcement says to me, this is a gun bill that's going to help us keep this community safer. I take that seriously. And I've voted for many uh, bills over the last 10 years when law enforcement's opposed to these bills. I, I, I guess I kind of asked the, the sponsors, well, well, 
Why do we think this is going to make us safer? I mean, what what expertise are you bringing to the table? And I found that to be lackluster at best at times and sometimes uh, very political. Mm-hmm. Right. I get that it's an issue that is uh, red meat for you know some progressive Democrats and they want to throw it out there. But I think it's more important that we be thoughtful. Uh, we're short on time, but you're running for Congress uh, against a nursery owner, a Republican, uh, John du- Duarte, I think he says it. Is it mm-hmm. not Duarte? Yeah. Um, what is it going to take to win that district? It's very purple. Uh, it's really a toss-up. Uh, what, and you came in second in June uh, mm-hmm. to him. What's it going to take to win? Well, it was a five-way field in uh, uh, in June, and uh, I was kind of the front runner from the get-go and had everybody spending their money to uh, attack me. And uh, and I expected that, and we did really well, uh, particularly considering uh, the turnout and Democratic turnout. At the end of the day, this is a 43% Democratic seat, 29% Republican seat. It's 14 points. A uh, lot of independents are declined to state voters uh, here in California, 22%. I've represented two-thirds of this district for 10 years, won five elections. So two-thirds of these voters have voted for me again and again, margins as high as 60%. Um, I am a very uh, moderate Democrat. I work with both parties. Uh, I'm the only candidate in this race with bipartisan endorsements. I've got uh, several Republican sheriffs endorsing me, uh, Margaret Mims in Fresno County, Vern Warnke in Merced County, Jeff Dirksey in Stanislaus County, several Republican uh, Board of Supervisor members, as well as all the traditional Democratic endorsements, going all the way up to those same statewide leaders that yep. uh, uh, that, that Marissa says I fight with. But, <laughs> you got to uh, do some die fight. They're yeah. all on board. And you're the only one that lives in the district. And I'm the only one that lives in the district. So I feel like uh, you know, I understand why the, the media fund folks and the and, and the folks with the algorithms and they're going after the competitive districts and I get all that and and you got to take every election seriously because nothing's for granted right yeah. you got to go talk to every voter and you got to earn their vote I've done it for 10 years and I'm gonna do it again all year. right Assemblyman Adam Gray thank you so much for coming in today that's gonna do it for this edition of Political Breakdown we're a production of KQED Public Radio our producer is Guy Marzarati our engineer Katie McMurrin I'm Scott Schaefer you can find me on Twitter I'm at Scott Schaefer and I'm Maurice Lagos you can find me on Twitter at mlagos. Have a good one. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 